Hi guys, this is Fatal Tales. My name's Katie. And I'm Azra. And today we're going to be going back to the Jeffrey McDonald case and just kind of finishing up that story. So hopefully you guys really like it. But before we get started, Katie and I wanted to tell you guys that you need to watch The Wilds. Please go watch The Wilds and then tell me all of your theories because I'd really like to fucking know what the hell is happening on that show and I've already rewatched it twice, so. It's crazy. It's craziness. We're losing our minds. <laughs> we made our own group chat for it. I've watched it again. You know that fucking image of the guy with like the red string and he's like looks all crazy? That's me. That's I'm right now. That's me. <laughs> That is, that is Katie. That is both of us. It's just, it's such a good show and it really makes you think and it has such good representation. It's so diverse. It's just incredible and you guys need to watch it. Yeah, I'm actually incredibly impressed with how like diverse the cast is and like how many different sides of different issues they show. It's really, really well done. Yeah, it definitely, definitely is. Um, I guess we should uh, get into the case. So, obviously, if you haven't listened to part one, what the hell are you doing here? Go back and listen to part one and then come back. Just to give you guys a little bit of a recap in case you've forgotten what we talked about in part one. The number one um, rule is Jeffrey is a fucking asshole. That's always like Yeah. <laughs> Jeffrey McDonald is a fucking asshole. He probably murdered his wife and his two daughters, but he got off on his initial Trial 32 hearing because a woman named Helena Stokely's neighbor claimed to have seen her the night of the murders, and she was wearing clothes that matched the description of what Jeffrey said that he saw the night of the murders. But then it came out later that this neighbor was fucking lying so the reason that Jeffrey McDonald got off on the initial Trial 32 hearing was for nothing. So we're going to pick up kind of at the start of the reinvestigation. So the investigators found that during his marriage with Colette, Jeffrey had had at least 15 extramarital affairs. So he was cheating on her a lot, and most of that cheating happened while he was away for work. According to Colette's sister-in-law, Colette knew about the affairs and said that she was giving up and that she did not want to do it anymore. Now, Colette's best friend also said that in letters to her, she indicated that her and Jeffrey were having a lot of problems, and shortly before the murders, Jeffrey told Colette he would be leaving again for another work trip. Colette knew that this meant that he would be sleeping around, and she also knew that she would not be able to handle it while she was pregnant. Remember, she was pregnant with another child at the time of the murders, and this pregnancy was much more dangerous than the first two pregnancies that she'd had. So, two days before the murders, Colette called her mom to tell her that she wanted to go to live with her parents, like with her daughters, and take them and stay with her parents for a while. In response, Colette's mother told her that she should wait until the spring to come and visit. But, unfortunately, Colette couldn't wait that long because just two days after that conversation, she would be dead. That's so tragic. This whole situation is so tragic. I cannot imagine being Colette's mother in this situation, knowing that she wanted to come home, but then, you know, telling her to wait and then her ending up dead. It's just awful. 
yeah, it's definitely super tragic. And, you know, even if Jeffrey wasn't the one that killed her, if Colette was staying with her parents, she still wouldn't be dead. Exactly. And obviously, you know, this isn't anybody's fault except for Jeffrey's or if it wasn't Jeffrey who did it, whoever the murderer is. But I still can't imagine, like, the amount of guilt her mother must feel. And it's just really fucking sad to think about. And it's also just really upsetting. And it really makes me mad thinking about what Colette must have been feeling. Being four and a half months pregnant, knowing your husband is going to cheat on you no matter what you do. Right. And the thing is, it's not like, you know, he he works for the military. It's not like she can be like, you can't go on a work trip, tell your boss you can't go. The government's gonna send you where they're gonna send you when they're gonna send you there. There's not any way around it. So unless they want to uproot the family every time, and the government isn't gonna co-sponsor, like, them uprooting their family every time they want to send him on a trip. So basically, Colette is in a no-win situation here. She really, really is. And also, this is, like, the 1970s, so... You know, it's not horribly, horribly long ago, but it's long enough ago that at that time, women who were divorced really weren't treated super well. And there was a lot of stigma around women who were divorced, who had kids. So what were her options, really? She didn't work. She was just a stay-at-home mom. What was she supposed to do? She was really trapped in this situation. Definitely, and it's just kind of really fucked up. I really feel fucking bad for her because when you're pregnant, your husband is supposed to love you and take care of you, not cheat on you multiple times and be a fucking dick. Right, and I think, I mean, that's why, in my mind, it doesn't matter if Jeffrey killed her or not. He's still a fucking asshole. Like, I think he did it, but I also think he's a fucking douche. Oh, he absolutely is. He, I fucking hate him. Now, after police found all this out about their relationship, they also kept going back to the point that there really didn't seem to be any evidence of intruders in the home. All weapons were found in the same place after the attack. They were all found outside the house near the back door, which is obviously really weird because typically they would be hidden, be far away from the home, not really be right by the house. And some of them may not even be found because they may have been taken with the killers, right? Exactly, but every single weapon that was used on them was found in the exact same spot right outside the home. So super fucking weird. Definitely. Now, as well as this, every weapon also came from inside the McDonald home. So one of the weapons was a wooden slab that came from the bed in the master bedroom that was the size of a baseball bat. The other two weapons were an ice pick and a kitchen knife. And once again, all three of these all came from inside the home. The wooden slab comes from within the bedroom? Which is where Jeffrey, if you believe the police's timeline, started the attack. So it's like, if somebody else found this and, like, pulled it out from under the bed or whatever, like, it it just doesn't line up with somebody breaking in. 
Right. I mean, my understanding is that the wooden sub was kept under the bed, but it was originally like part of the bed. Like whether it be like part of the frame originally, or it had been like, you know how some beds come with like those four posters or, you know, do you understand what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Like if you can take them out, like something like that. So not something that an intruder would know would be there not like an obvious weapon you know a knife's an obvious weapon an ice pick is an obvious weapon but something that was like under the bed is not something that you're gonna be like oh let me just ha 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 i know where this is if you don't live there right Right. actually okay wait this is a really weird diversion (laughs) but this reminds me of when i was younger my bed had those four things that were like at each corner of my bed and you could unscrew Mm -hmm. them and when I would be home alone, I would unscrew one because it would have have it would have nails on the end of it when you unscrewed it. And I would sit on the couch with it in my hand when my parents were gone because I would be like, if somebody breaks into my home, I will have this to protect me. Oh my god. <laughs> that is the cutest image I've ever heard of in my entire life. <laughs> It's so fucking weird. I cannot believe I did that. And I remember the day that we got rid of that bed, I was really upset because I was like, what the fuck am I going to use to protect myself now? God, I hate you, dad. (laughs) Amazing. I know. Um, But anyways, yes, it is fucking weird that all the weapons came from inside the home because no intruder is going to go into the home with the intent to murder people. And not have anything with them? Right. It, that's the thing to me is they didn't use any other weapons aside from those three. But there were six people that were part of the attack and none of them thought to like bring something else in case they couldn't find something immediately. Right. And also, they don't know if Jeffrey or Colette have a gun. Or even if Jeffrey would be awake. Mm-hmm. If Jeffrey's awake in this situation you like you go in and you don't have weapons he's gonna fucking murder you right exactly it's just such a dangerous situation just none of it is believable to me that the intruders wouldn't bring their own fucking weapons it's just another thing that points to the fact that it is absolutely jeffrey no for sure definitely now something else that pointed to the fact that there wasn't any intruders in the home was the fact that none of Jeffrey's blood was in the living room at all. Not even a speck of his own blood was in the living room. Even though he claimed that he was stabbed laying on the couch fighting the intruders off. How do you get stabbed in the living room on the couch and not leave any blood? How are you beaten with a club and not leave any blood? And especially, like, he's getting in a fight with them. Like, think about, you know, if you cut your hand and you hold it really carefully, like, you might not get blood anywhere. But now, Mm -hmm. let's say you cut your hand and you're trying to punch somebody, blood's gonna go everywhere. Or you're fending off attacks, like, you're not able to keep it clean. So the idea that there wouldn't be blood in the living room, absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, not believable at all. Like we said in part one, the only place with Jeffrey's blood was the fucking bathroom. So, 
That's where he stabbed himself. Fuck you, Jeffrey. Nobody believes you. That's the thing. It's just like, to me, in my mind, I don't understand how you believe Jeffrey when none of the evidence matches up with his account. I really honestly would love to believe him. I would love to believe that he didn't kill his family, but none of the evidence matches up with what he says happened. None of his blood is in the right spot. None of his family's blood is in the right spot. Everything about the case shows that he's lying about something. So if he's lying, like, why is he lying? Right. And like you said, we don't want to think that he did it because the idea that a father is going to murder his two daughters and his wife, it's awful. Nobody wants to think about that. Who wants to think that? Nobody. But that's what the evidence is showing. And literally, that's the only thing that makes sense in this case. Now, Jeffrey did something really fucking weird at this point. He claimed that he had been searching for the hippies that had murdered his family and had found one of them and killed that one. Um... Okay, Jeffrey. Like, this is absolute lies. Everybody knows that this is lies because, A, he wasn't even in town at the point he said he did it. But also, how would he even know who these hippies are because the police don't have identities for them? So how would he know how to identify them? It doesn't make sense. And if he's trying to clear his name, which maybe that's what he's trying to do by saying this, it's stupid because he's just implicating himself for a different murder. Also, let's just reason through this for a moment. The police are pointing at you and saying, we think you fucking did this. Your defense of yourself is to go out and hunt down the people who killed your family. All right, that makes sense. But then to murder them? so that they can't be arrested and nobody can figure out who actually did it instead of to take them to the police and be like, this is the fucking guy. I know if you get him to confess, whatever, right? Like, that's just bad strategy. Right. He's just... Jeffrey's smart because he's a doctor, so clearly he had to have some smarts to become a doctor, but he's also a fucking moron. <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey's a goddamn idiot. And you may quote me on that. Put it on a t-shirt. Now, Colette's mother wanted to believe Jeffrey. And she, like, you know, Colette's stepfather, Freddie, was very staunchly behind him to begin with. Now, Freddie had kind of turned and basically was leading a crusade against Jeffrey at this point. But Colette's mom kind of held out until the very last second when it became pretty damn obvious that it was him. And Jeffrey was finally charged with three counts of first-degree murder after Freddie, Colette's stepfather, kept championing for a trial. In 1979, the trial began, and this was nine years after the murders. Now, Jeffrey really saw this trial as an annoyance, and he called the prosecutor quote-unquote chicken shit. So clearly he was not uh, taking this very seriously at all. Um, no. He was not. To have the gall to call the prosecutor chicken shit. You're chicken shit, Jeffrey. You are chicken shit. For sure. Um, now, Jeffrey's defense was the same as the defense lawyer that he'd had in the Article 32 hearing. His lawyer's name is Bernie Seagal. And Jeffrey pretty much was just trusting that his defense would do the same thing that, that 
they had done in the Article 32 hearing and just take care of everything for him. So while Bernie was getting ready for Jeffrey's trial, Jeffrey was using that time to try and find someone who would write down his life story. So you can just kind of see how seriously he was taking this. By that, he wasn't taking it seriously at all. His family has been murdered, and he's on trial for the murder, and he's like, nah, bruh, I'm gonna find somebody who can write my life story? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It seems like the best possible use of, use of time to me, you know? The best possible. Oh, for sure. Not working with your lawyers to try and prove your innocence. Not talking to the media. Not doing anything like that. No. Working on a book. Because everybody wants to know Jeffrey McDonald's life story. For sure. So now we're going to talk about kind of what happened during Jeffrey McDonald's trial for the murder of his wife and children. The defense first decided to bring in Helena Stokely because, as you might remember from part one, after she was hospitalized for her drug addiction and then released, she was once again arrested for drug addiction. And at this point, she confessed to a police officer that she thought she might have been involved in the murders. And then she recanted that confession, and then she took a polygraph test and failed it. The polygraph examiner basically said that she wasn't lying, but she also wasn't telling the truth. And that she basically had no idea what was happening. Bottom line is, in my opinion, Helena Stokely had no idea what she was fucking talking about. And also, in my opinion, it was a big mistake for the defense to bring her to the stand. Because... What they were hoping she would say was that she was involved in the murders like she had initially told that police officer, but she did not say that. When she was asked if she could remember where she was that night between 12 a.m. and 4.30 a.m., she said no. She also said that she had never seen the crime scene before. To argue against this, the defense brought up past interviews where Helena said that she had remembered standing over a body holding a candle. But really, Helena Stokely was adamant that she had never been in the crime scene and had nothing to do with that murders. I think the um, bottom line here is just Helena's not a reliable witness. She goes back and forth on what she's saying. She goes back and forth on what she did or what she said. She's just not somebody that can be trusted to tell you the truth of the situation, regardless of whether she was involved or not. She's just not somebody that you can rely on to tell you the truth. Yeah, I completely agree. And it was a mistake of the defense to bring her up for sure, because it's really like she's a fucking wild card because they don't know what she's really going to say. They don't know if she's going to say, yes, I was there the night of the murders or no i wasn't there the night of the murders because basically everything she says is a fucking lie right i mean she either she's lying when she says she was there or she's lying when she says she wasn't there but she said both so how can you possibly trust her to get up and say the exact same thing that she said before right now after this the defense tried to still pin the murders on helena and they tried to do this by subpoenaing some witnesses. So they tried to subpoena the polygraph examiner, Helena's neighbor, the police officer she had confessed to, and others who had been witness to some things that 
perhaps made Helena look guilty of the murders. Now, but the mainly defense... they were they were like witnesses to her confessing. Like they were people mm-hmm. who had heard her say, "Yes, I was there. This is what happened." Right. Or like Helena's neighbor, she said, "I was really fucking high on LSD that night. I had no I have no idea where I was, you know." People... That's basically all he can say. Right. It's people who were witness to Helena making herself look guilty, but not necessarily, Mm -hmm. like, other witnesses who were there the night or or whatever. Yeah. Now, the defense argued that this was evidence that Helena was present that night. However, the judge did not permit the evidence because he said that she was untruthful. And this resulted in the jury not really knowing everything. So, while I do think that Jeffrey is guilty... I don't know that this evidence, like, I don't know that these people shouldn't have been allowed to be brought to testify because, especially, like, the police officer, because I feel like as a juror, that would be really important evidence to hear, oh, this other woman confessed to the murder. Right, well, that's the thing, like, to them, Helena Stokely is just some lady who was supposed to confess and then didn't, and it's like, okay, now we don't really know anything, and you can tell me all you want, but, like, if they had somebody else saying, no, this is what she told me, it might have changed their minds or made them evaluate evidence differently. And I think that this particular instance is why we still talk about the Jeffrey McDonald case and think maybe he was innocent, is because the jury didn't get to hear all of the evidence, regardless of whether, you know, he's guilty or not whether it seems like he's guilty or not whatever dna evidence they pull whatever but the bottom line is they didn't hear all the evidence right and the judge is very clearly biased against him and he very clearly thinks that jeffrey's guilty which i still think that whether or not jeffrey's guilty he deserves the right to a fair trial and i don't know that he got it i really don't that's the thing everybody should have the same equal access to the judicial system and equal representation under the judicial system. And so the fact that this gets omitted really kind of speaks to even a white guy can be railroaded by a judge. And I'm not saying that Jeffrey didn't do it. I'm just saying you have to consider and allow the jury to consider every single piece of evidence showing both guilt and innocence or else you don't know for sure that they would still convict. This might be why so many people still think that Jeffrey McDonald is innocent, because maybe he didn't get a fair trial, and so they argue that he was only convicted because the jury didn't hear all the evidence. Whereas if he was convicted and the jury had heard all the evidence, maybe those people couldn't make the same argument. Absolutely. Now, the defense also chose to bring Jeffrey up for questioning at trial. So for their questioning of him, they asked him, you know, the very basic questions about his like marriage with his wife and his relationship with his daughters. And he said that he loved his wife very much and that he loved his daughters and that his relationship with his wife was amazing and great. You know, all that fucking bullshit because we know that that's not true. However, when it was the prosecution's turn to cross-examine him, he 
ended up making himself look really, really fucking bad. He got really irritated with the prosecution and we will explain more about why he got irritated. But yeah, we're, now we're going to go into the prosecution's side in the trial. Yeah, so the prosecution kind of brought up a lot of different points that made Jeffrey look guilty. One really big thing is the pajama top that he claimed to have been wearing. So the pajama top, you'll remember, he claimed that he had been wearing it. The people had pulled it over his head while he was fighting them, and he had kind of used it to block them when they were trying to stab him. The prosecution used this story against him by basically having a live reenactment. So the man that was holding the pajama top basically ended up getting stabbed in the wrist. The top got completely shredded and it was in a much bigger mess than Jeffrey's was. So one thing that's really unique about Jeffrey's pajama top is that it had perfectly unique like round holes in it. Like someone had like held it and stabbed into it very meticulously as opposed to like somebody, you know, wildly attacking you with it. So another thing that's really damning is that there are no pajama top threads in the living room at all. However, in the master bedroom, there were plenty of blue threads from the pajama top and many of those were underneath Colette's body. So the prosecution argues, well, they got there while they were fighting, you know, Jeffrey's fighting her, he gets cut or stabbed or whatever, and the pajama threads get put on the ground. There's also some pajama top threads that were found in the bedding in Kimberly's room. So they thought that maybe when he had carried her like back into her bedroom while she was unconscious, after he had knocked her out, that he had perhaps left some of the threads by accident in there. There was also a splinter and thread matching the club and the top that were found in Kristen's room. So basically, you have little pieces of Jeffrey's pajama top throughout every room in the house except the living room where he claims to have fought them. So basically, just doesn't really line up with his story at all. In addition, there's also a single thread that was found underneath Kristen's fingernail, and Kristen obviously is the one that had the cuts on her hands from trying to defend herself. So that's kind of damning as well. So I just want to say, obviously these threads could be there for a multitude of reasons. Because obviously the threads can just come out of the pajama top, you know. He said that in his story he had put his daughters to bed. He was the one who had put them to bed. So for all we know, he could have changed into his pajamas earlier in the evening and then put the girls to bed. And that's how his threads got into Kimberly's room and that's how his threads got into Kristen's room. It makes sense for the threads to be, you know, in his own bedroom. I'm just playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. It can be explained a little right. bit. And ultimately, he does claim that he did go into each of the girls' rooms to check on them when he was, right. you know, getting ready to call the police. So... Exactly. In that situation, it's like, okay, he does say that he was in all of these rooms. It's just they were, the threads were under the bedding. They were underneath Colette. So it doesn't necessarily right. make I mean, any sense. Under the bedding, he could have tucked them into bed. He could have laid in bed with them, read them a story goodnight, you know? Yeah. I mean, there are lots of potential explanations. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it the lines only... up less with his story and more with the police's story. Mm -hmm. The only thing that really stands out to me is the splinter in Kristen's room. Because, you know, obviously, according to the police's theory, Jeffrey hit Colette 
once more in Kristen's room once she came into Kristen's room after she regained consciousness to protect her daughter. So it would make sense for the splinter from the wooden club to be in Kristen's room as well if that's where he hit Colette a second time. And it doesn't make sense for the splinter matching the wooden club to be in the room for any other reason, really. Right, yeah, it doesn't seem like the murderer would take the club from the room where Colette was to no, bludgeon the girls. No, But the next piece of evidence you're about to share is really, really what's super damning in my opinion. Right. So um, there's also a very unique pattern of the holes. So at some point when Jeffrey goes into the room with Colette, he put the pajama top over top of her and it was laying on top of her when the police came in to like find them. But the unique thing is that when you line up the pajama top on top of her, all of the holes line up with like stab wounds in her body with, from the ice pick. Essentially, it seems that Jeffrey or someone had laid the top over her body and stabbed her through the top, perhaps to prevent, you know, blood or evidence from getting on them or whatever else, you know. It really doesn't seem very logical, but it, that's what it looks like happened. Now, essentially, the main problem with this is that Jeffrey said that he had taken off his top before entering his daughter's rooms. So, like, he had left it in with Colette. So the threads really shouldn't have been there also because he had said that it was in the room with Colette instead of him co- going through each room with it on. Right. Yeah, he said he laid it over Colette already. Um, I think he stabbed Colette with the top on top of her for his blood to be on it for for a reason but he could have just laid it on top of her afterwards for her blood to be on it for a reason you know right i think he just didn't want to get more of her blood on it than like he didn't want it to be obvious that he had had a fight with her so he decided to stab her through it thinking that perhaps he could explain the holes by saying that he had fought someone off with it it's just that (laughs) that doesn't make any goddamn sense Right, the holes that perfectly line up with the fucking stab wounds on her chest. Right, Jeffrey. Okay, buddy. Now, one thing that the prosecution says during their argument is, it doesn't matter if you have 5,000 people outside 544 Castle Drive yelling, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, unless you can put one of them inside that night, and you can't. There were four people inside that night, the McDonald family. And this just kind of reiterates the point that there's just not any evidence that any weapons, any blood, any people were there from outside the home. It seems that it was just the family inside. And that's the thing. The science shows, the forensic evidence shows that it was Jeffrey. Show me proof that it was Helena. Show me proof that it was anybody else other than some really obvious false confessions and i'll look into it and maybe i'll believe you but really all of the evidence points to jeffrey absolutely so what we were talking about with the holes in jeffrey's top perfectly matching the puncture wounds in Claude's body this is exactly what the prosecution asked jeffrey when they are cross-examining him and this is what jeffrey got really irritated with them about he was basically just really fucking offended that they were questioning him about this and really was just like, why would you even imply that I could do something like this? Really rude about it, really irritated. 
and made himself look really bad in front of the jury because he acted more offended that the prosecution was asking him this question than he was upset that his wife and his daughters had been murdered. So once again, Jeffrey's an asshole. Right, he's basically very, like, agitated, irritated, not wanting to answer the question, not having any answers for them. And it just, he looks really fucking guilty. Yeah, he does. So after six hours of deliberation... The jury came back with a verdict of not guilty for murder in the first degree for Colette. However, they found him guilty for murder in the second degree for Colette, guilty for murder in the second degree for Kimberly, and guilty for murder in the first degree for Kristen. So, you know, it's interesting that he got murder in the second degree for Colette and Kimberly, but murder in the first degree for Kristen. And I think that's because he thought about it and really planned Kristen's murder before he went in and stabbed her. Yeah, I think, I mean, the prosecution's argument is that Jeffrey and Colette were having a fight and it got out of hand and Kimberly walked into the room and Jeffrey accidentally hit Kimberly with the plank of wood and knocked her out. And that then from that point, he kind of had knocked Colette out, had knocked Kimberly out, and then premeditatedly decided to stage this break-in and to kill Kristen. So it can be argued that he planned to kill Kristen, where with Kimberly and Colette, it was difficult to prove that he had intended to kill them. Right, exactly. Now, whether or not you agree that he should have gotten second degree for Colette and Kimberly, he did end up getting three consecutive life sentences. So he's going to be in jail for the rest of his fucking life anyways. And after his sentencing, he immediately began planning his appeals process, which I think is fairly normal, you know, in this situation. However, something that's not quite as normal is that right after his sentencing, friends of his back in California hired a former FBI chief, Ted Gunderson, to reinvestigate the case. This guy's a fucking quack. Oh, yeah. And you're going to want to remember the name Ted Gunderson because he's going to be a reoccurring nightmare character through the rest of this episode. (laughs) Absolutely. He's a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Now, Ted Gunderson's first order of business was to try and prove that it was, in fact, Helena who was involved in the murders and not Jeffrey. So he wanted to prove that Helena was guilty. So he wanted to get her to confess. So he did some digging and he found out that Helena Stokely had gotten married and moved to South Carolina. And his really great, super amazing plan was to send a psychic out to North Carolina where Helena was, believing that the psychic could use her paranormal powers on Helena. Top tier detective work, genuinely. Oh, really? You know, Please just keep psychics out of police work, for fuck's sake. You can use psychics in your own personal life as much as you goddamn want. I really don't give a shit. But, my god, don't use it for murder investigations. Well, and to me it's like, you know, psychics are not a proven science. They might be able to point you to where evidence is, but um, to use them to try and persuade someone to confess or to... I don't know, figure out key elements of a case. Like, 
just not realistic. Not even a little bit. No, definitely not at all. Whatever we think doesn't matter because Ted Gunderson went forward with this plan and this psychic flew out to North Carolina where she told Helena that she was really in love with Jeffrey and not her husband and that Helena should fly to Jeffrey and help clear his name so that they could have a life together. What in the goddamn fuck? (laughs) I know. Now, for some reason, you know, really surprisingly, this didn't work. I'm shocked. I cannot believe it. I'm really in fucking disbelief. I I cannot fathom why this wouldn't have worked because it was it was the greatest plan I I've, I've ever seen. Like I said, top tier detective work. Just oh, genuinely like for sure, nail it for sure. Now after Ted Gunderson's master plan with the fucking psychic didn't work, he decided to pursue Helena's husband instead, who was in jail at the time for assaulting her so clearly he's another gem now helena's husband whose name was ernie davis was promised by ted gunderson to have his bail posted if he went to la and made a statement incriminating helena for the murders gunderson wanted him to repeat what claims previous witnesses said elena had made so clearly super legal super okay i don't think any judge would have a problem with this i don't think any other police officer would have a problem with this top tier detective work yeah this guy's just a fucking moron he just wanted to get a confession by any means necessary and it turns out that those means are utterly ridiculous so basically all of this backfires because right after ernie gives his statement to the police he skips his bail hearing and instead he hops straight on a bus back to his wife helena now almost immediately they track the two of them down ernie's arrested again and then he tells helena that he had given her up to the cops so helena then offers to tell gunderson everything and she was flown to la and interrogated for five days straight now There was an agent who had been assisting in the interrogation, and he said about Gunderson and the interview that Gunderson had, quote, used unethical means and tactics in a very important case, end quote, and that, quote, an element of duress had been used during the interrogation of Elena. Basically, Gunderson was being really fucking unethical. In addition to this, Helena was promised by Gunderson that she would be moved to California with a new house and a job and given a new identity. And she signed a statement confessing to the murders and implicating five other killers in this crime. Now, Helena claimed that the group had decided to kill the McDonald family because Jeffrey had previously refused to treat addicts. Their main target, she said, was Colette and that the girls were next in importance to them. Helena said that, quote, human sacrifice involving a pregnant woman is the most prestigious for the cult members, followed by children, women, and lastly men, end quote. Because of this, Jeffrey could be spared if he decided to give them drugs, but they needed to kill Colette and the girls because they were super important as a human sacrifice, which see, just doesn't make any sense it really doesn't especially because she's saying before that that jeffrey's the one that they're upset with because he refused to treat drug addicts i guess you could say that like maybe they're trying to get back at him through his family but like 
why do you have to kill a woman and children when you could kill the fucking asshole who wouldn't treat you to begin with? Like, it just doesn't click for me. It, it doesn't click for me either. And we're going to see now how much of Helena's confession makes no sense because we're going to go through her account of what apparently, according to her, happened the night of the murders. And spoiler alert, none of it makes any sense. According to Helena, on the evening of the murders, she called the McDonald home. And Colette answered, saying that she was going to her class, and that a babysitter would be there soon, and that Jeffrey would be home later in the evening. Now, this is the first thing that Helena said, but it's already so full of holes for me. First of all, it doesn't fit Jeffrey's account of what happened that night, which obviously Jeffrey could have lied, but according to Jeffrey's account, he was home with the girls the whole evening. There was no babysitter, and he took care of them while Colette was in her evening class. And also, why would Colette tell some random stranger on the phone what she's going to be doing for the evening and who's going to be taking care of her five and two-year-old? What? Right, like, if somebody called me and was like, hey, are you going to have a babysitter over to watch your kids tonight? I'd be like, go fuck yourself. Like, no, right? we're not I having this cops. conversation. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> right? It just, no, like, just no. No, Helena, no. Helena then says later that night, the six of them in that cult did a satanic ritual and then drove to the McDonald's home around 2 a.m. Now, she said that two of the men went into the master bedroom to kill Colette, while the rest of them stayed to wake Jeffrey to try to get him to sign a prescription for Dixedrin. After they hit him a bit, he agreed to call a friend to get the drugs for them, but instead he called the post operator to try and get help, which obviously he did. Except that in his account, he didn't. Yep. <laughs> yep. I feel like that would be checkable. I'm sure that if he called somebody, they would have remembered that. It's not oh, right. like there's like an infinite number of post operators. There's a finite number and there were only probably a few working at that particular time of the night, you know, mm -hmm. around like 3 a.m. So to be like, oh, he called the post operator and told them this, like that's an extremely checkable fact and shit didn't yeah. happen. Right, right. You're totally right. So... After that thing that definitely didn't happen, <laughs> the group was angry because he called for help and they beat him up some more. And it was at this point that Helena chanted, acid is groovy, kill the pigs, hit him again. And right. then Helena went into the master bedroom and claimed that Colette was being bludgeoned to death. Now, she claimed that Colette was being bludgeoned to death while Kimberly next to her apparently not waking up while her mother was being murdered who sleeps through someone being bludgeoned to death next to them no one literally no one again just side-eyeing helena a little bit with this story <laughs> yeah 
Now, Helena said that this sight of Colette being murdered was too much for her, and she convinced the two men to go back into the living room with her. Now, in the living room, Jeffrey was unconscious, and so Helena decided to go into Kristen's bedroom, where she saw that baby Kristen was still breathing in peaceful. Knowing that both Kristen and Kimberly were still alive, and Colette was dead and Jeffrey was unconscious, she returned to the living room and told the men, let's get out of here. So if they're leaving Kristen and Kimberly still alive, who's murdering the girls? And also who's stabbing Colette? Because all she said was that she was being bludgeoned. So who's stabbing Colette? It's just, her story has so many holes. It A, doesn't line up with the evidence even, like, the publicly known evidence, and B, doesn't make any sense at all, even just in terms of, like, the mechanics of the attack. Right. And I think it's just so obvious that this is a fucking false confession, and I don't know why. This is the thing when people are like, well, what if Helena did it? And then they point to this confession, and I'm just like, no. How can you look at this and think that this is legitimate? Because it's so clearly fucking false. And it's absolutely checkable against the facts of the case and does not line up with them even a little bit. Exactly. Now, obviously this story has major holes in it and it doesn't match Jeffrey's story in some super big ways, but Gunderson doesn't give a fuck. He promised that any statement that she made would be used for a movie and that if she didn't give another statement, she'd get 40 years in jail. So... She gave him a second statement, and she named a sixth man in this, quote, the wizard, and he was implicated by Helena as well. Bizarrely, after this second statement, moving negotiations began. So apparently Gunderson could follow through on this, despite not really being an actual cop or having any authority whatsoever. He's just kind of a PI. Anyway... After this, Gunderson sets Helena up with an interview with the Washington Post, and then things take a turn because Helena's not happy with the tone of the article that the Washington Post wrote about her. So she makes the decision to recant her confession to the FBI. She's like, nah, I made it up. And then she goes on to accuse Gunderson of being a member of the mafia because, of course, she does. (laughs) So... Gunderson doesn't stop pursuing Helena as being the perpetrator of the murders. He starts rounding up every single witness who had ever heard or seen Helena do anything suspicious over the years. Now, one of these is a neighbor of Jeffrey's who had testified at the initial Article 32 hearing that on the night of the murders, she'd seen taillights of a passing car, but she couldn't remember what time it was and she didn't have any more information than that. Not make and model of the car, color, nothing like that. She just kind of was like, there were some headlights, I saw them, I don't even know what time it was. Gunderson decides to bring back this neighbor and just like really drill her and question her. And surprise, surprise, she starts remembering more. So almost 10 years after the fact, she remembers that she saw the car between 2 and 3 a.m. and that this car was a blue Mustang, which just so happened to be the type of car that Helena was driving the night of the murders. And on top of that, she also remembered that the blue Mustang was parked beside two cars, which one was a military Jeep being driven by a black man. So again, kind of details from the case that Jeffrey had said. And 
the crazy thing about this is, it was raining the night of the murders. She had been watching this whole thing go down from 70 to 80 feet away. So make and model of the car is tricky. You know, people's faces are tricky to like make out. But for some reason, she's able to remember that in the passenger seat of the Mustang, there was a man with piercing, deep-set eyes and a sneer on his face. Which, like, none of this was in her original account of this events. None of this was originally what she had said. She's just coming up with it now, 10 years later. And the thing about memory is it's so malleable and so tricky that any detail that she had heard about Helena or about the case could have gotten fused in with this story. I think that that's exactly what happened. I think that over the years, she was maybe the neighbor of the McDonald family massacre. She was there the night that this happened. She saw the taillights of the car of the people who possibly murdered them. And then over time, it turns into... I didn't just see the taillights. I saw a blue Mustang. And then it turns into, oh, it was actually at, like, the time of the murders. And then more and more details come to light like that. And also, I think that Gunderson's questioning probably didn't help because Gunderson is a fucking asshole. He doesn't really use great techniques with his interrogations. So we don't know how he was questioning her. He's probably like, so you think you saw a car? Helena was driving this kind of car. It was probably this car, wasn't it? Right. I think that's exactly what happened. He was kind of leading. She had had, you know, 10 years to think about this event and change it in her head. And and the reality is, I'm not saying that she intentionally changed it. I'm just saying this is how memory works. You remember one thing one way, and then you hear somebody else's story of, like, what happened, and suddenly you remember more details, but you don't actually remember more details. You just pick up the details that they've told you. Right. It's like that thing that your memory is just, like, what you remember of an event is actually your memory, like, your last memory of that memory. It's it's your memory of <laughs> you retelling the story that. of that. Yeah. yeah. Like, your memory is the last time that you remember that memory. But speaking of Gunderson and his interrogation techniques, we kind of wanted to look into why people give false confessions and what the factors are that lead to false confessions, such as Helena's. According to the Innocence Project, researchers studying false confessions have determined various factors which may lead to false confessions. So, they are the following. Real or perceived intimidation by law enforcement. Use of force or perceived threat of force by law enforcement. Compromised reasoning of ability of the suspect due to exhaustion, stress, hunger, substance abuse, mental limitations, or limited education. Devious interrogation techniques or fear that not confessing will lead to a harsher punishment. So I think that we can say that the questioning that Gunderson used, like the type of interrogation techniques that Gunderson used on Helena checks almost all of these boxes, if not all of these boxes, because she definitely had compromised reasoning of ability due to exhaustion and stress because she was in there for five days, as well as substance use. Fear that not confessing will lead to a harsher punishment. He threatened her that... If she didn't give a second statement, she would get 40 years in jail. But that if she did, she would get a movie movie deal. So if you're in that situation, 
what are you gonna choose? Are you gonna choose 40 years in jail or are you gonna choose a movie deal? And then of course, intimidation, devious interrogation techniques. I think those ones are pretty obvious. So yeah, it just wasn't great. And I really feel for Helena in this situation for, you know, being stuck in that situation for five days. One thing that I'd like to mention though, is while we know that this applies for sure to the Gunderson interrogation, we don't know exactly what all the conditions were to any previous interrogations. So while Gunderson was definitely unethical, we can't say 100% proof positive that any other interrogators were unethical. And it may have been for different reasons that Helena had confessed to those other crimes. We just wanted to point out that this particular confession is not very compelling. Right. Yeah, definitely. So, while all this was happening with Gunderson and Helena, Jeffrey was in jail serving his sentence until July 1980, which was less than a year after his sentencing, when the Fourth Circuit overturned his conviction. So yeah, he was released on the grounds that he did not get a speedy trial, which is something that he has a right to, and he's free again. Fucking free Again, I hate it. <laughs> no. It seems like this asshole just has the, like, very best possible luck. And it's amazing to me because it's like, how do you how do you get so lucky that you find someone that will just falsely confess to the murder that you did? God, I know. So now that he's free, he went back to work in California, bought a ski condo, and started dating an actress. But these two only dated for a short time before he got engaged to a 22-year-old flight attendant. So, however, great. Oh yeah, fuck you, Jeffrey. Just two months after he was released, the Supreme Court reversed the Fourth Circuit ruling, and he was sent back to jail, and his engagement was off. So, we love, we stan. This is incredible. <laughs> yeah, good ruling by the Supreme Court here. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Just, he's out. Like, I feel like he just keeps thinking that he's free and he's done and then he gets sent back to jail and it's incredible. Now, because of this, Gunderson had to keep trying to prove it was Helena again and not Jeffrey. At this point, Helena is pregnant. She's an alcoholic. And after being offered an appearance on 60 Minutes, she starts talking about the crime again. Now, she claims that another woman was present at the time of the murders as well, and she claims that one of the murderers was an undercover CID agent. Now, we know that Gunderson fed this to her. He pretty much wanted her to save this. She also claims that three weeks before the murders, she broke into the house and stole from Colette's jewelry box, which also doesn't make any fucking sense. It doesn't make sense that she would say that she stole that bracelet from Colette's jewelry box, but something that's kind of a pattern with Helena's false confessions is that she's always being offered something that could potentially make her famous. She's very much confessing it when it's convenient for her and then recanting when she thinks she could get in trouble. Right. And she wants something out of it. Like, she wants money, she potentially wants fame, like, she wanted the movie deal. She wanted the 60 Minutes interview. She got that Washington Post interview, and when she didn't like the tone of it with the way it made her look, she got fucking angry and recanted her confession. So clearly, her image in the public is really important to her, and 
potentially money and fame are really important to her. You know, I'm not sure, but that's kind of the pattern that I'm seeing here with her false confessions. Definitely. At this point, Helena's not the only one that's confessing to these murders. So six others had come forward confessing to have murdered the McDonald's. The key thing to note here is none of these people were connected to Helena, and they weren't really connected to each other either. So these are all independent people saying, oh, I was involved, ooh, I was involved. It's not like a group of six that are like, oh yeah, we came together and we did this and we're sorry. It's like a one-off and a one-off and a one-off of like just random people being like, I was involved. And it's like, okay, but none of you have any connection to the crime. There's no evidence that you were there, and it doesn't make sense that you're confessing to it. So basically police are kind of like throwing these out as they get them because they're just not they don't have any credibility false confessions like this are so interesting to me and so odd because it's really different from what we just talked about with the innocence project and what we just explained with you know false confessions that kind of come from um devious interrogation tactics but these ones come because people want the attention want to be able to say that they did it because they're just fucking around. I don't know why they do it, but it's weird. And I will never understand it because why would you want to get in trouble for a crime you didn't commit? I don't understand. Right. Now, after this point, Helena supposedly uses a pin to prick Gunderson's car's steering fluid drum in an attempt to kill him. So essentially, Helena and Gunderson are each other's arch nemeses, and at this point, Gunderson's like, yeah, fuck this, I'm out. He quits working on the case, and Jeffrey's friends have to hire another former detective to replace him, but this guy, the second detective, basically quits immediately and is like, nah, everything about this case points to it being Jeffrey, sorry guys. So... (laughs) They've hired two detectives. One of them uses really nefarious tactics and then almost, you know, gets killed by the woman that he's trying to pin the murder on and quits. And then the other guy's like, nah, it's fucking Jeffrey. So here you go. Thank God the second detective had some brain cells unlike Ted Gunderson and was like, no, fuck you. It's it's, it's Jeffrey. Like, the evidence clearly shows that it's Jeffrey. After this second detective, ex-detective, quit, another third ex-detective was hired. But, unfortunately, this ex-detective would not have the help of Helena's confessions, as around this time, her body had been found in a South Carolina apartment. She had died in 1983 at 30 years old from acute pneumonia complicated by cirrhosis of the liver. Jeffrey was upset when he heard of Helena's death, as... It really foiled his plans to, you know, pin the murder of his wife and children on this innocent woman. But he wasn't upset for long because that book that we mentioned at the beginning of this episode would be published soon. For the past four years, Jeffrey had been working with the author Joe McGinnis, who had told Jeffrey that he believed that he was completely innocent and had nothing to do with the murders of his wife and children. However, once Joe McGinnis's book, Fatal Vision, came out, Jeffrey was blindsided when, in the book, the author calls Jeffrey a homicidal maniac, which is so funny to me that 
Jeffrey thinks that this author is going to be telling his life story and talking about how innocent he is and how he's been wrongly convicted and wrongly accused and that he's the victim, he's the real victim in all of this because that Jeffrey thinks that he's a victim and that you know, he really doesn't care about his wife and kids, but he's the victim. And Joe McGinnis is interviewing him and is secretly like, no, I hate you. To me, that's the thing about this case is it's like anybody who spends a substantial amount of time on it kind of comes back to the fact that like you just can't get around the lack of evidence that anyone else could have done this. Yeah, and that must have been what um, what Joe realized. And he must have seen how how much Jeffrey really didn't care about his kids and his wife. Right. I mean, I think in this case, either you believe that for no good reason, the government and the police department all conspired to convict a man who is not guilty of a crime that he didn't commit because no reason at all, or you believe all of the evidence, which all of the evidence really, points to there not being anybody else in the house, so there's just no way to convict anyone else for this crime. Like, it just has to be him. Right. It, it really, really fucking does. If you find any evidence and you can prove that it was someone else other than him, I'll eat my fucking hat. Like, I'm sorry, <laughs> but it just, to me, it doesn't seem like there's any explanation other than Jeffrey. No, I agree. Like I was saying, give me solid, concrete evidence, not flimsy, false confessions. I mean, honestly, I would even begin to question myself if they could give me proof that there was someone else in the house. If there is proof that someone else was in the house, I will take that and I will run with it. If you can also, even if you could just, if Jeffrey had given us like a a coherent, believable narrative that he was in the bathroom when the intruders attacked and they got to his wife first and then they attacked him while he was still, you know, trying to get out of the bathroom and that's why all of his blood was in there and that he was, you know, fighting them off in there or whatever, then I would be like, you know what? I believe that you were in that bathroom. That's where you got stabbed. That's where you fought them off and it makes sense and that's why. But that's not the story that he told. The story that he told is that he was in the living room when he wasn't. Like, he clearly did not have a fight in that living room. The cards were still standing up. The table was overturned. And that's pretty much the only evidence of any disturbance in the whole living room. There's none of his blood there. It just doesn't line up with his story at all. And that's the thing to me. That's the bottom line. I I agree. It's so obvious to me that there was nobody else in that house. And also... Jeffrey has a temper, and he has a reason to want to get rid of his wife and his kids. There was problems in his marriage. We talked about that. We talked about him cheating. We talked about Colette being very unhappy. And then he probably, and then he just fucking freaked out and was like, well, I guess I gotta kill these kids now. Which is heartless, but I really don't think he cared about them that much. And that's the thing to me, too, is like, point me to a motive, too. How many cults of hippies are there going around murdering people in their homes like sure there's the manson family but like they're pretty much the only cult that has ever killed anyone that wasn't a cult member pretty much everybody else that's in a cult is only going to kill the people that they're directly adjacent to they're not going to kill some random family or some doctor that they have a vendetta against because they wouldn't give them or treat them for their drug addiction you know right And I think that that's why we decided to call this episode Jeffrey's Motive, 
because he's the only one in this case who has any sort of motive. No one else, no other suspect has any sort of motive to commit this crime except for Jeffrey. He's the only one. I completely agree. So now in this book, Fatal Vision, that we were talking about, Joe McGinnis, the author of the book, wrote about an incident that had occurred that perhaps showed what kind of person Jeffrey really is and maybe shows what kind of temper he has and how he treats kids potentially. So in this incident, he was on a yacht with one of his girlfriends and her son. And when he got upset with her son, he grabbed the kid and screamed that he was going to crush his skull between the hull and the dock. Now, fortunately, he didn't do this, but he did end up throwing the kid overboard. So fucked up. I I can't imagine anything that a kid could do that would warrant anything that extreme. Nope, nothing. That's because they're a child and he's an adult man. You need to get yourself under control, buddy. Oh, he really, really does. He's just a fucking dick. Now, with Helena dead and the book throwing public opinion away from Jeffrey, things are not looking good for him at all. That is, until a woman named Kathy Perry confesses to the murder. So Kathy Perry is the other woman that Helena had claimed was at the house the night of the murders. And she claimed that they had injected Jeffrey with a narcotic to subdue him. And then they went upstairs and she had mixed up the genders of the kids. So she was thinking that they were boys instead of girls. And that they had hurt the kids and then the mom. But the thing is, no narcotics were ever found in Jeffrey's system. And the apartment that they were living in didn't have an upstairs. So she basically is mixing up the details of what happened in the apartment. She also claimed that she stabbed Colette in the stomach and the legs. Neither of these areas were parts of the body where Colette had been stabbed at all. She had been stabbed in the neck and the chest. So, again, just details are not lining up here at all. Now, Kathy was later diagnosed with schizophrenia, which had caused her to hallucinate and hear voices, and she had been hospitalized multiple times for it. After they're able to get her meds under control, she was coherent enough to be able to deny any of the self-implication in the crimes. So, basically, Kathy's confession here is not taken seriously. Um, She wasn't in the right mind when she was giving that confession, and basically immediately after recants it. So again, you know, Jeffrey gets a little bit of hope and then it's immediately taken away when it becomes clear that this is not true. I feel really bad for Kathy Perry because clearly Helena implicated her in this and she was not doing well and she was not in the right state to be interviewed and... Yeah, definitely. And I mean, imagine like thinking that you had potentially murdered someone and then coming around and realizing, oh, actually, that was just the voices in my head. Or, you know, that was a hallucination and that's not reality and I didn't actually right. do that. Right. It just must be really traumatic. Now, things, like Katie said, were not looking good at all for Jeffrey. And as he was, at the same time, denied an appeal and public opinion of him continued to be pretty bad. And so he attempted to sue the author of Fatal Vision, Joe McGinnis, for $15 million for contract fraud. 
Now, this case ended up being settled for $325,000. After the court case, a New Yorker author came out with a piece in defense of Jeffrey, and this resulted in a flood of books and articles coming out in defense of Jeffrey. Now, I'm not really sure if this New Yorker author really genuinely changed opinions of other authors or if it gave them the courage to come out with their real opinions on his innocence because people had for so long strongly believed that he was guilty. But either way, after this New Yorker piece came out, tons of other things started coming out defending Jeffrey. And because of this, public opinion really began to change. People began visiting him and saying that he was too nice to be a murderer, which is a stupid argument because Ted Bundy was said to be nice and charismatic and he was a fucking serial killer. So I think saying somebody's too nice to be a murderer is really dumb. Well, and the reality is, like, people can be polite and kind to strangers and a complete and total nightmare in their actual, like, day-to-day lives and in their Mm -hmm. homes. Like, there are plenty of abusive parents that nobody realizes are abusers because they don't live with the person. That's just not how murder or abuse or bad people work. Right. You're totally right. So it's just, it's really not a good way to look at this. Now, Jeffrey's defense team continued to try and find anything they could use to go through an appeal. So when going back over many memos from the original trial, they found what they thought would be able to be used to free him. So the defense had originally missed a critical piece of evidence that they could have used to defend Jeffrey in the first trial. This piece of evidence was a 22-inch blonde strand of Saran that was taken from Colette's hairbrush. So, Saran is like a material that's typically used to make wigs. However, according to the FBI labs, Saran was often used for doll hair, but not for human wigs. So, this kind of put a damper on Jeffrey and his defense team, but pretty soon afterwards, two texts were found in the FBI collection that talked about the uses of Saran in the making of human wigs. The defense team wanted to use this as an appeal to claim that the FBI had committed fraud on the court because they had hid the fact that Saran could possibly be used to make human wigs. During this process, it was not determined that the FBI had committed fraud on the court. However, human hairs found under both children's nails and in Colette's hand were granted to be sent for DNA testing, as well as hairs found under the fingernails of Kimberly and Kristen. Although he wasn't granted a retrial immediately, this DNA testing was pretty good for Jeffrey, but it would not begin until 2000 and so it would be a minute before you know the dna testing would begin so he has to sit in jail for a little while so in the meantime while he's waiting for the dna testing to begin jeffrey kind of viewed this as a victory and he began to connect with a woman named Catherine who had written to him in 1997. she had said that she wanted to help him And five years later, in 2002, Jeffrey and Catherine ended up getting married. Catherine, to this day, believes that Jeffrey is not guilty and has been an advocate for her husband's innocence. Now, 
In 2005, with DNA testing of the hairs not back yet, Jeffrey applied for parole for the first time. He was ultimately denied his parole because he refused to admit that he was guilty. And in 2006, the DNA results came back that the hair that was found underneath Colette's hands and underneath her nails didn't match any of the other suspects, but it did match either that of Jeffrey or her hair. So um, some of the hair was Jeffrey's, some of the hair was hers, and none of it matched anybody else or like any of the suspects that they have. The hair underneath the children's fingernails doesn't match anyone's DNA. doesn't match Jeffrey's, doesn't match Colette's, doesn't match any of the suspects. I think that it makes sense for the hair under Colette's hands to match hers or Jeffrey's because obviously if they're having a fight it would make sense that she would pull his hair or even if she's just stroking his hair whatever he's her husband. Right absolutely and the thing about like the hair underneath the girl's nails is that this crime scene was not kept very um secure yeah so it could have potentially been hair from somebody who was examining the crime scene and not from an intruder exactly there's no proof either way because it doesn't match the dna of somebody else either but it doesn't match jeffrey or colette so Mm -hmm. could be evidence that there was somebody else in the home but could also just be evidence of a really poorly kept crime scene exactly that's exactly what i was just gonna say and like we like we said in part one when we were talking about the crime scene not being properly secured colette's body was allowed to move like some they were they allowed somebody to move colette's body to see what was underneath her like to see if anything was underneath her um and she was allowed to be contaminated so who knows if they allow the same thing to happen to the girls bodies so it's very possible that somebody else's hair could have gotten underneath them definitely now in a 2012 hearing that was held to consider the new evidence they decided that jeffrey still shouldn't get a new trial with the new evidence and in 2018 jeffrey again tried to overturn the ruling but the court upheld its decision not to consider the new evidence or not to hold a new trial for the new evidence so again the court saying there's just not enough here to prove that it's anyone else there's still not enough to prove that anyone else was there it still seems like it's jeffrey and again the thing is to me If Jeffrey wants us to believe him, he needs to give us a story that fits what the evidence says. To this day, Jeffrey has said that he'll never admit to his guilt. Which is so irritating to me. That's the most annoying. He's in jail. I understand that he's in jail and he's been sentenced and he's convicted. And all his appeal attempts have not gone through and his parole attempts have not gone through. And they're not going to because he's not going to admit his guilt. But... It just must suck for her family, for Colette's family, because they're never going to get that closure, that final nail in the coffin that, yes, this is it, you know? Yeah, I mean, personally, I think that they're more satisfied with the fact that Jeffrey is has been arrested, he's in jail, and even if he doesn't admit, like, deep in their hearts, I think both Freddie and Colette's mom know that he's the one that did it yeah i think that they do know i just think that he's a fucking asshole and he's not admitting it to be an asshole i mean yeah now wikipedia refers to jeffrey as quote an american physician i don't understand this because to me jeffrey's convicted it's been proven to a court of his peers of 12 people that he was the one that did this 
he should be referred to as a family annihilator. Like, he did this. Why are we calling him an American physician? Why are we calling him a doctor instead of a murderer? That's what he did. Right. I think that murderer trumps doctor in the list of things you should be credited as. Because. Absolutely. You can't practice as a physician when you're in fucking jail. Sorry, Jeffrey. And you shouldn't be able to because you're a murderer. Exactly. And it's just really gross to me that this is how we treat, you know, white men who are convicted of crimes and that everybody thinks that this is what he's, everybody knows that this is what he's done, yet we're still calling him a physician, not a family annihilator, not a felon, not a convicted murderer, a physician. It's disgusting. Fucking white people. Like, we can get away with anything we want to because we're white, and people will give us all the benefit of the doubt because we're white. If this was someone else, if this were a person of color, they would be buried in jail and no one would be talking about this because it would fit the stereotype of what we believe about people of color as a society. But because he's a white man and he was a doctor and he was intelligent and he's kind of polite, people are like, it couldn't possibly be him. And it's like, just shut up. Just shut up. (laughs) I mean, how many innocent black men are sitting in jail right now for crimes that they didn't do? Just because of, like, stereotypes that people have about them. (laughs) Like, it's just fucking ridiculous. You have this man where literally all the evidence points to the fact that he fucking did it, but people are, like, putting him on lists of five convicted murderers who might actually be innocent. Fuck you. And the thing to me, again, it's just give me any proof. Anyone. Anyone. Please. Please point to me some concrete evidence that shows that there's somebody else present in the home, that what he's saying is true, that his story is factually correct. I just would love to see some good, actual evidence of that. Because I don't, I would love it if, you know, he wasn't the one that did this. I don't like when dads kill their kids. Like, that's fucked up and a really horrible story to tell. But it seems like that's got to be the only possible solution in this case. And like I said before, this is why we're calling this episode Jeffrey's Motive, because no one else has any motive to do this but Jeffrey. And that's this fucking case. I hope you guys enjoyed part two. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So if you guys did enjoy it, share this episode with anybody else who you think will like it. Maybe go give us a review and rating on iTunes. That really helps us out a lot. All our social medias and sources for this episode will be linked in the show notes but you can follow us on instagram at fatal tales on twitter at fatal tales pod send us any case suggestions at fataltales at gmail.com and remember guys be gay and don't do crimes or at least don't get caught also listen to no body no crime by taylor swift because that really fucking that's this case (laughs) Go stream No Body, No Crime, also all of Evermore, and go watch The Wilds. K thinks bye.